Welcome to the Sword and Staff. My name is Josh Robinson. I am one of your hosts for the Sword and Staff. I'm also the pastor of New Haven Church. And joining me today on our first episode in a very, very long time is yep. my new co-host, Richie Brock. And Richie is a former occultist and paranormal researcher who is also now a Christian. And uh, so on today's episode, Richie and I are going to be discussing the topic of witchcraft, what it is, what it isn't, some history of magic in Appalachia, and the origins of magic in general, and how Christians ought to think about this topic of magic and witchcraft, and how they ought to engage with it. So today's episode ought to be very, very interesting, I think. Richie, what do you think about it? You think it should be interesting? Oh, yeah, I'm excited for it. Yeah, it's been it's definitely been a long time coming for sure. Yeah, yeah, good deal. Uh, I don't know if you want to take a moment to maybe say something to the to the listeners. Uh, maybe maybe a little bit about yourself. Uh, I know we're gonna we're planning on doing that a little bit more as this episode goes along here, right? Like we're gonna talk about yeah. a little bit about kind of some of your practices. Uh, whenever you were a practicing occultist, we're gonna talk about that a little bit. But I don't know if you want to maybe just introduce yourself a little bit to listeners. Maybe tell them you know, a little bit about yourself. Um, yeah, I've been a, I was a practice practicing occultist for seven years. It started in 2010, right when I got out of high school, mm. I kind of came into it, um, working paranormal cases and it, yeah, it just sort of went off from there. Yeah. And we're, we're planning on talking about that a little bit more, yeah. uh, more in and, depth and, later on. Yeah, more in depth later on, but that's Richie, and we're glad to have Richie joining us on the Sword and Staff. He and I, well, we'll we'll save some of that for the end of the episode, some of the plans <laughs> for the future. But anyway, so to kind of get us started, let's kind of define what witchcraft is, right? What what it is, yeah. what it's not, and, and maybe some distinctions that we see in in witchcraft. So let's let's just start there, Richie. What is witchcraft? Okay, witchcraft is kind of like an umbrella term that's yeah. used to describe really an eclectic mix of spiritual and magical practices. Yeah. It's often within a variety of different forms of paganism, mm -hmm. although it's not limited to just paganism in general. Gotcha. Right. So it's it's kind of like a catch-all term. Yeah. For, yeah, gotcha. All right. So maybe, so, so what... So whenever I think about witchcraft, I think about, <laughs> I think about, uh, little old ladies who live alone and yeah, conical hats, green faces, yeah, right? They've got the conical hats. They've got the green yep. faces and the warts and they've got like this cauldron, you know, I'm thinking like, uh, let's say like, uh, Halloween town, you know, that kind of thing. Wait, is that, am I thinking of the right one? No, hocus pocus, hocus pocus, hocus pocus, <laughs> pocus is the one that I'm thinking about. Uh, yeah. And so I don't know, I, I, for most people, that's probably the image oh, that yeah. most people have. And so, but what I think's going on is some of that's probably not that accurate, right? Uh, uh, a lot of it's not that accurate. Yeah, a lot of it's not that accurate. So maybe let's talk about this because here's the deal. I, I think that probably a lot of people think that witchcraft is something like maybe an alternative religion right to maybe like christianity or something like yeah. that but that's not necessarily true is it so let's talk about that a little bit more no if you if you were if you go and ask any person that identifies as a witch they'll tell you right off the bat that it's not a religion okay 
And um, let's see. Yeah, I know. I know several witches that will reject even the term paganism. So it's really just a tangled mess of vines that lead here and there. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so so there's some differences here between practices, right, and like a, yeah. a religion, right? So yeah. so what? So maybe what are some religions that kind of incorporate some of this that would fit under this umbrella? In the occult world, it's the main ones have since the early 1900s have been Aleister Crowley's Thelema okay. and practices like New Dawn and Wicca. Okay. So, so Wicca then is a religion. That's, yeah. so that's correct. Okay. That's good. All right. So if you guys are listening now, you, and if you didn't know that, now you know that, uh, <laughs> because honestly, I, I, I did not know that. Um, I thought that Wicca was just kind of like a, just a, a term just for somebody who was a witch. I didn't know that it was a practicing, uh, like a religion until you and I had talked about that here not too long ago. So yeah, that's... today, especially these days, mm-hmm. the majority of witches out there, they're not Wiccans. So all Wiccans would identify as a witch, but yeah. not all witches are Wiccans. Huh. Well, that's really interesting. So, so if somebody so a lot of people, what I think I hear you saying is this, that a lot of people use magical practices uh, in a way that's what they would say is not religious, right? Like they're, they're not, right. it's kind of like almost abstracted out of a, a larger system, right? And they're using yeah. it as like a type of tool. Is there a type of name for, for that type of magic? Is that just called witchcraft? Is like, is that its own thing? Um. I think it boils down to the two types of magic there. It can be reduced to two categories. There's elemental magic, Mm -hmm. which is magic that's based in nature. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the original ancient magic that you see pre 1900s. And then that sort of evolved with Aleister Crowley into things like Thelema, which it, which were the seeds of like the next category, which is chaos magic. Okay. So what's chaos magic? You say that, and that sounds a little bit familiar to me. It may sound a little bit familiar to listeners who's been watching Wanda's Marvel. Uh, WandaVision. Uh, yeah, yeah. Marvel's WandaVision here recently, right? Because uh, I can't remember what her name is. Uh, the the woman who was the witch, Agatha, right? Agatha. She, she, yeah, she tells uh, Wanda that she is using chaos magic. So that's a term that's kind of buzzing right now. So what exactly is chaos magic well chaos magic sort of came on the scene in around the 1960s -hmm. it was really a term that was coined by the occultist uh, austin spare Mm -hmm. it was sort of like the old natural elemental magic Mm -hmm. but combined with postmodernism oh okay so so postmodernism has even infiltrated oh yeah the, the magic world so that's that's pretty interesting okay all right. Well, that's that's helpful. That kind of helps us define terms a little bit. It kind of helps us to see that there are some differences between, say, practices and formal religions. Like it seems like what. So, for example, one of the things that I've noticed as somebody who is on the outside of this world and has really just never been exposed to this world except in the past two years is just a kind of misconception that I had was that it was all a formal religion. And then whenever I started studying it, uh, I sort of realized that there was kind of like, there's not a unifying principle within this world. And and as somebody who's a pastor, 
that kind of drives me nuts. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, I'm, you know, one of the things that I love about Christianity is there's, there's a unifying principle in it. You know, um, it's, you know, it's from God. And not only is it from God, but his word uh, emanates from him. And so there's unity there, right? And, right. you know, there's a, there's a certain way that Christians should behave. There's a certain way that Christians shouldn't behave. And there are practices that Christians should do, and there's practices that Christians shouldn't do. So there's, there's you know, unity there. And so whenever I look at the, the world of witchcraft, like, I just don't see that there. And so no. I'm like, so one of the things that you and I talked about, I'm like, boil witchcraft down for me in like five points. And you're like, yeah, you just can't really do that. Yeah, that really came along with chaos magic. It wasn't yeah. like that at all before. Before that, before 1900s, there were just primary schools of uh, occultic thought. Yeah. And it was really dominated by the elemental magic and Aleister Crowley. He's the father of modern occultism. Gotcha. So I hear you talking about elemental magic. So what? Maybe explain for listeners what that is. What is ele what does elemental magic mean? Elemental magic is a magical practice that's derived from a reverence in nature. Okay, gotcha. So it, this is like somebody who's trying to uh, say maybe manipulate the energy that's in nature, yeah. and they're trying to use that perhaps for whatever purposes they may have. Maybe maybe they're trying to, um, you know. Maybe they're trying to bend the elements uh, to use the power that's there for, you know, to maybe gain something in their life or maybe gain something from someone or, or something along those lines. I don't know. Does that sound, does that sound accurate to you? Yeah, that's pretty spot on. It's usually centered around the cycles and seasons of nature, cosmology, astrology, things like that. Gotcha. Okay. All right, cool. Well, I think that fairly gives kind of a broad overview of what witchcraft is, what it's not, and maybe some of the the, the uh, distinctions between some of the religions and practices. Um, so wait a second, no, no, wait. Before we move on, I got another question, and we don't have it on our outline. And oh it's, boy, and it's like so. Where would you put, say, uh, something like? Uh, well, one of the things that I've seen here over the past few years is there seems to be a rise in neo paganism right? Like there's people who are practicing, you know, neo-pagans. Uh, does that kind of fit under this umbrella as well? Um, it really depends from person to person. It's like witchcraft is different from practitioner to practitioner. Gotcha. Some practitioners literally handcraft their own pantheon of gods. Like okay. I've met witches that will work with gods and goddesses from religions the world over. So it really just depends on the person. Gotcha. Okay. So, so would somebody, for example, who's do, who's, who says that they're maybe um, participating in uh, Norse, Norse uh, religion, right? Um, worshiping, you know, the, the Acer, you know, stuff like that. Um, those people, do you think that they're, that falls under that? Because don't they do stuff like casting runes and, you know, that type of thing, or is that maybe not a unifying principle there either? Oh, there's definitely elements of that there. I know they gotcha. practice divination and stuff like that. But again, all all people that identify as witches, I've met a great deal of them that will just reject paganism outright. So it's definitely a tangled mess. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, so let's kind of transition here a little bit and let's talk about 
the history of magic in Appalachia. So you and I both are from Appalachia, right? Both of us yep. live in West Virginia. And um, one of the things that is surprisingly common where we live is uh, magic practices. It's Talk way magic. more, yep. yeah, it's way more, it's way more common than you would think it is. Um, and it's so common, I think, that some people are unaware that they're even practicing it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so what type of uh, magic practices do we find here in Appalachia? Appalachian folk magic is really its own little world. I mean, it's similar to what you find in hoodoo and voodoo, but yeah. it's so, our own little special twist on it. So what's hoodoo and voodoo? Hoodoo like, is just uh, another term for folk magic. Okay. So whenever I think of voodoo, I think of the voodoo doll. <laughs> yeah. But things like voodoo and Santeria, they're yeah. more like formal re religions than witchcraft or a magical practice. Okay. All right. So maybe what are some ways then that, that people, oh, I've got, I've got a story here that I'll tell here in a minute, but um, what are some ways that people are practicing this stuff that maybe they're unaware, like maybe something like hoodoo, or maybe elements of, of voodoo or Santeria or something like that. Is, is there, are there specific ways that people are practicing that here in Appalachia? I think people here are just naturally superstitious. Yeah. And a lot of the things that they do have a special symbolic meaning. Yeah. Like growing up, if a bird were to fly anywhere near one of my windows, my mom mm -hmm. would freak out and think there's going to be a death in the family or something like yeah. that. I, rem I actually remember, uh, so it was a little bit different in the house that I grew up. So where, where I grew up, it was if a bird got in your house. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If it got in your house, like that meant there was going to be a death in the family. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, another thing too, was whenever I was growing up, there was a, a guy who, so I, I grew up in a holler. All right. So if listeners, listeners are unfamiliar with a ho what a holler is, it's, you know, it's like a hollow, you know, Some hollow. people call it a hollow <laughs> in other places in West Virginia, we call it a holler. Um, I grew up in a holler and at the end of the holler, uh, there was a man who, this is, I don't, I don't know if this is true. It's kind of local folklore. Uh, <laughs> he was, he was rumored to have been the seventh son of a seventh son. Yep. Okay. And one of the things that he was really like locally famous for was removing warts from people um and like blowing in babies mouths and uh removing thrush yeah um and he could also apparently uh remove burn uh, like the burn uh from a, a burn wound um apparently he could also stop the flowing of blood things like that um so whenever i was growing up you know i always heard this these stories about this guy and uh whenever i was so i did not grow up in a family that was Christian, um, it really in any sense. Um, we, I can recall maybe being in church, say a handful of times growing up. So the family that I grew up in, it may have had like some Christian values here and there, but it wasn't really Christian in any sense. So whenever I was like, you know, about right there in my teenage years, um, growing up, I had like, my hands were like covered in warts. <laughs> like, that's, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I always, my, my, my family always been like, well, you always blamed it on like playing with frogs and stuff like that. Who knows if that's true? Um, yeah, I've heard that before too. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, but, 
Um, but I had like three warts on each hands, uh, each of my hands. And whenever I was like 12, 13, um, my family took me to this local, local guy who was the head of my hauler. And whenever I got there, uh, he was actually the father of my seventh grade science teacher. So like, you know, it's kind of well-known. Uh, but anyway, my family took me to this man and as they took me there, uh, he, from what I remember now, I'm in my thirties now. So it's been quite a while ago. Um, what he did was he broke out some quarters and he put quarters on each of the warts that I had on my hand. So three, I've actually heard of this before. Yeah. So he put yeah. three, three on one hand and then three on the other and he walked off and he like put it in in like a little change sack or something you know and yep. he gave it to me and he said to me um take these home you know put them up somewhere the and forget about them is basically what he told me he said the moment that you forget about them he said the warts will disappear on your hands yeah so you know i'm like all right you know, whatever i'm like this is weird but <laughs> we'll we'll see um so anyway uh, I took them, took them home. I gave them to my grandmother and my grandmother put them up. And then like a week later, <laughs> like I woke up and they were gone <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm in my thirties now. Okay. Wow. And they're still gone to this day. They never came back. And so I don't know if that falls under, uh, you know, say hoodoo or something like that, but is this, was this, what I encountered was this an Appalachian folk magic practice? Oh, absolutely. A lot of it's based in the healing arts and herbology and stuff that treats medical conditions. Like growing up uh, for bee stings, my mother and my grandmother would mix together a mustard seed, mm -hmm. um, witch hazel, yeah. a white distilled vinegar, and uh, beeswax and would apply it to a bee sting to get rid of a bee sting. Wow. Or there would be like for New Year's every it's, we still do this to this day. They would take a piece of silver, a silver coin and mm -hmm. cook it with the cabbage for cabbage rolls and stuff on New Year's. Yeah. It's supposed to bring health and prosperity. Yeah. So that's so funny that you say that yeah. because most of the people that I know here in, you know, Southern Appalachia uh, still yet do that to this day. Oh, absolutely. Like my, like growing up, like I've never been a fan of cabbage rolls. I, I don't do, do that. Um, <laughs> But like grow like every year, uh, like I actually didn't know that this was a, a practice that was used in folk magic. And I didn't know that until like last year. And I asked my grandmother, because my grandmother does this every single year. And I said, did you used to put coins in those? And she said, yeah, actually I did. She's like, it was a tradition that was passed on to me from, you know, my mother and, you know, her mother before her, you know, that kind of thing. And she's like, and we used to do it. She's like, we grew up like really poor. And so we used to do it as a way for, you know, uh, maybe, maybe, you know, to help us get prosperity, you know, that type of thing. She's like, but I stopped doing that a long time ago. She said, um, she's like, but yeah, I still yet make the cabbage rolls, you know, every new year's. And yeah. like, I still know tons of people though, who do that. And most are probably like not aware at all that this was Absolutely. a folk magic practice, right? Yeah, I was talking to one of my friends from Romania not too long ago, and I'd mentioned that I was making cabbage rolls, and, and he brought up the exact same thing, even down to the silver coin in the pot. He yeah. said it's a, a Romanian gypsy custom there. 
So you can see how that kind of just migrated to West Virginia with the people that came here, even with the colonies. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fascinating. So, all right. So those are some of the really common uh, practices that we see here in, in Appalachia. Are there any more that you want to add on before we move, move ahead a little bit that, I, that maybe I missed? Um, actually, if you get, if you, I would say, if you give me 24 hours with anybody in Appalachia mm-hmm. or even in the world, I would be able to highlight just several instances of magic. Magic is really inescapable yeah in people's lives when you think about it yeah yeah it's it's become so ingrained in some ways into part of our culture that most people aren't even aware of it yeah and then that's going to move us on here a little bit to where we're going to talk about that a little bit more what what exactly you mean about the inescapability of magic and so in this part we're going to talk about maybe just the origin that we're going to, we're going to move out here a little bit and just talk about the origins of magic in general. Okay. So the biblical worldview actually has an account for where magic comes from. Um, and so we, we actually find in scripture uh, in the Genesis six account. So in, you know, in Genesis six, we learn about the story of the sons of God who come down, they intermingle with the daughters of men and they produce Nephilim, right? Like most yeah. people are, are familiar with that story. Now there's differing interpretations on it, but the, the interpretation that was present in the day that Jesus lived, which was in the second temple period, was that the sons of God were angelic beings, what, which were some refer to as divine council members who came down and intermingled with men. And um, in doing this, we also learn from Jewish traditions outside of the Bible, like in First Enoch, that this was also the event where uh, humans, for the first time, received magic. Um, and so, actually, we see that in First Enoch. I actually have it here. I'm going to read a little bit for it, uh, a little bit of it for us, and we can talk about that a little bit. But in First Enoch 6, uh, going through chapter 8, we see that it says this. It says, and it happened when the sons of humans multiplied in those days. So this is kind of commenting on the Genesis chapter 6, uh, Noah, sons of God, that whole story. Now, we don't believe yeah. that First Enoch is scripture, um, right? We're, we're Protestants. We don't, we don't believe that this is scripture. Actually, as far as I know, only the Ethiopian church has it in their canon. So the majority of Christendom does not have this in their canon. We also don't believe the scripture, but we do believe that it is profitable. Um, it is quoted in scripture in Jude. And so since the biblical writers were familiar with it, we think that it's something that we ought to be familiar with as well. And so uh, because of that, we read it. And whenever we read it, we see that it's commenting here on the, uh, the sons of God story. And it says this, when it happened when the sons of humans multiplied in those days, they fathered good and beautiful daughters and the angels the sons of heaven saw them and desired them and said to one another come let us choose for ourselves women from among the humans and so that they might bring children for ourselves and Simyaza, who was their ruler said to them i fear you may not wish to do this deed and i alone will be responsible for the great sin therefore they all answered him let us all swear by an oath and devote one another to mutual destruction 
not to turn back from this decision until we complete it and do this deed. Then they all made a vow together and put each uh, put each other under a curse in regard to this. These are the names of their rulers. Semyaza, this was their ruler of all the angels, Arathak, Kimbra, Semain, Daniel, Arios, Simeon, Iomiel, Crochiel, Ezekiel, Batriel, Sathiel, Atriel, Tamiel, Barachiel, and uh, Ananthema, Thoniel, Ramiel, Asiel, Rachiel, Toriel. These are all are the chief, uh, chiefs of tens among them. Then they took for themselves women, each of them choosing a woman for themselves, and they began to go to them and defile them. And they taught them, get this, in chapter 7 of First, uh, first Enoch, and they taught them sorcery yep. and enchantments and cutting of roots and explained herbs to them. But those who became pregnant brought forth great giants from 3,000 cubits. These giants ate up the produce of the humans. When the humans were not able to provide for them, the giants had courage against them and ate up the humans. And they began to sin against the birds and the animals uh, and the wild animals and reptiles and fish, and each one of them ate up the flesh and drank the blood. Then the earth brought up charges against the lawless ones. Aziel taught the humans to make swords, weapons, shields, and breastplates, the lessons of the angels. And they showed them their mining and craftsmanship, anklets and adornments, powders and painted eyes, and all kinds of choice stones and dyings. Uh, much ungodliness, prostitution happened. They, they were led and they were led astray and ruined in all of their ways. Semyaza taught enchantments and in cutting and cutting of roots, Ermoros, spells of healing, Rachel, astrology, Cochiel, the science of symptoms, Sathiel, watching the stars, Serial, the course of the moon. Therefore, the cry uh, of the utterly destroyed people went up to heaven. And so the biblical worldviews account of where things like magic, where those things come from, was from fallen spiritual beings, right? Yeah. Uh, like it, it clearly says that this is where humans learned how to do things such as sorcery, enchantments, and not only that, but we see that, that the angels almost bring humans' knowledge in a way to so that they might destroy themselves, right? They they don't oh, yeah. they don't learn just sorcery and enchantments from the fallen angels. Um, it also says that they this is where they learn how to make swords. This is where they learn how to make weapons and shields and and breastplates and things like this. This is where they learn how to do war with one another. So the biblical world in the biblical worldview, where magic originates from is from fallen spiritual bringing, uh, be, beings bringing this knowledge down to humanity so that humanity might destroy itself. You got anything you want to add to that? Um, yeah, even in the occultic traditions, you have, even especially the Solomonic magic, you have angels that are given charge over the different elements of magic. Mm. So I've, I've read in uh, the writings of Aleister Crowley where he designed rituals to conjure, contain, and channel the essence of archangels wow. to work magical workings. So, yeah, it's definitely there. That's pretty heavy. I was actually, uh, not too long ago, watching a movie called uh, oh, The Color Out of Space. It was a H.P. Lovecraft uh, story that was adapted into... Yeah, I remember you telling me that. Yeah, 
it was adapted into a movie on um uh platform called shutter and it had like it was starring like nicholas cage it was actually fairly decent um and in the movie uh there was this uh nick cage's daughter she's practicing uh some kind of witchcraft and in it she draws like a circle uh, that has a pinnacle in it and the interesting thing about it is whenever she begins uh what she's doing this kind of ritual she invokes the names of uh angels like she yeah. mentions michael gabriel and then she mentions some other others like raphael you know, Uriel, you know, several others. And so it's, it's interesting that, that you have this going on in these practices, right? The calling upon and the invoking of beings other than God. Yeah. Um, and, it, it, and it connects back to this, doesn't it? To this Genesis oh, yeah. 6, first Enoch type of, of worldview where you have angels bringing this type of knowledge to, to humans, right? So... Yeah, so magic at its core actually stems all the way back to Hebraic roots and Jewish yeah. mysticism like the Kabbalah. Right. I don't care if someone is uh, Norse, Egyptian, Greek, Celtic, Haitian, whatever the tradition is, if you peel back the layers enough, it all links back to the original stolen fire that was brought down to mankind from these fallen divine council members, spiritual beings, things like yeah. that. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And speaking of, of Kabbalah and that type of stuff, you, you can actually uh, like still yet see a lot of this stuff today in Kabbalah. I was actually oh, yeah. reading uh, Dr. Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Occult earlier, uh, and he actually has a whole section on Kabbalah in there. And he classifies it under the occult yeah. because they have this occultic uh, way of reading the Hebrew scriptures where they're bringing out hidden hidden meanings and you know occultic yep. things that type of thing so it's very very interesting how all of this connects together oh yeah that's literally what the word occult means yep means hidden or secret knowledge yep yep so really interesting and so this is going to bring us now to the point that you mentioned earlier which is the inescapability of magic now that may that may make people a little bit nervous hearing that. oh yeah but but really what we mean by that is that magic is an inversion of of what god has given to man in his word absolutely but like god has given it's an inversion of liturgy right like yeah. like god has given man rituals and uh, spirituality a way to interface with him uh right through like prayer the liturgy uh you know those right. types of things and what magic really is it's it's the same thing but it's it's just an inversion of it right and so recently Actually, it's it's so weird, just kind of how mainstream uh, this type of stuff is getting, and it, it's gotten, you know, more and more mainstream over the decades. I was reading uh, Walt, again. I, was, I mentioned Walter Martin. I was reading his uh, chapter on goddess worship, witchcraft, and Wicca earlier today, and he actually mentioned that in the seventies, um, it was estimated that there was twenty thousand witch covens in the U.S. Uh, in 1982, it was estimated that there was 50,000 in the U.S. Wow. And whenever this book was published in 2008, it was estimated that there was 200,000 to 600,000 in the U.S. at that time. So huge explosion in explosive this. Explosive growth, yeah. Yeah, explosive, parabolic growth. And 
you know, it's so mainstream now that you can, uh, I have a book, a magazine here in my hand uh, on witchcraft. Like, you know, p- listeners won't be able to see it, but we're, you and I are on camera. You can see it. But yeah. basically what it is, is it's called the truth behind the legends and the lore of witches inside their mysterious world, secrets, and spells, famous faces of the craft, Salem's tragic tale, modern day magic, healers, mystics, and more. But the interesting thing was in preparation for this episode, I picked this up because I wanted to, to have it for reference and I wanted to be able to look at it and just kind of use it as a source to appeal to. Um, but it's just, it's shocking to me how, um, how easy it is for somebody to get their hands on this now. Right. Oh yeah. And just not on a only, shelf at Walmart. Yeah. Just on a shelf at Walmart. Anybody can buy this. And the interesting thing is, is I was reading it and there's a section called the ABC of spell work. And I was reading it, you know, and, it, and it's talking about things like the law similars. It's, you know, it's a premise where you, you know, you, you're casting a spell, you know, you use objects that are similar to one another and, yeah. you know, and it helps kind of strengthen a spell, you know, that kind of thing. But I got to a section here um, on sacred circles and kind of spell casting. And there's a section here and I wanted to read it. And it's interesting. It says this, if you want to get more complicated, um, you can do some of the following before casting the spell. Uh, the first is cleanse yourself and your magical space. Sage or salt or water are good for this. Cast a circle that creates a, a place set aside from the mundane world. Call in the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, or invoke the god and or goddess. Place your magical tools on whatever you're using for an altar and focus on each one. Light a candle or candles, drum or chant or meditate, whatever, whatever helps you focus your power. Many witches find it helpful to record their spells in a journal or a book of shadows so they can document their work. So the interesting thing there about that is that's magic, right? That's casting yeah. a spell. And the first thing that I noticed as a pastor is just the overlap here between this and the liturgy yeah absolutely like if you go to most traditional churches they'll have a baptismal font at the back end of the sanctuary and the very first thing that you can the a traditional thing that a lot of people would do is they would dip their fingers into it and they would you know make the sign of the cross with it you know cross themselves yeah. with holy water you know so it's like a, a, a cleansing yourself you know and then yeah. after that you enter into the the sanctuary which is sacred space, right? And then what do you, what usually happens from there? You know, well, in some of the higher church traditions, um, you know, God, well, like we're, we're not a super high church tradition, but we, we still yet have a, a liturgy that's very traditional. You know, the very first thing that we do is we invoke God, right? We, we confess our sins to him. We, we, we ask him to forgive us of our sins. We ask him to meet us and to help us to worship him, you know, call it, lift us up into the heavenly so that we might be able to worship him there with the heavenly host. Um, and then after that, we, we do the things that they, that it mentions here. Uh, we sing, right? Some traditions chant, some light candles, it, but it was just shocking to me, the overlap here between oh, yeah. what's referred to as magic and what the church refers to as liturgy. And so this is what we mean by magic is inescapable, right? There's, this is the 
ritual, liturgy, and spirituality, right? This is the language of reality. This is how God has created us as individuals to interface with him and the unseen realm. And what magic is doing, what witchcraft is doing, and on all these types of things that fit under that umbrella, what they're doing is they are inverting the language that God has used, uh, to has, has created for us to interface. And they're they're doing it in a way that's distorted, right? That's in, that's corrupted, right? So I don't know right. if you got anything you want to add to that. Um, I think you pretty much covered it pretty well there. Yeah, and so, so I just brought up something here, and we can talk about it a little bit more. And that was the, the what seems to be a just a parabolic rise in, you know, neo paganism, you know, witchcraft you know, uh, a lot of those things. And, you know, it's interesting how these things are presenting themselves, right? It's, it's presenting itself in secularism, right? We we're living right. in what's been called a, a secular age. Um, we're in, uh, modernity or, or post-modernity, right? And so, but the interesting thing is, is even though we're living in what's supposed to be this enlightened age this secular age where things have been stripped of their sacredness and their higher meaning uh we see that things like witchcraft and neo-paganism are on the rise so let's talk about that a little bit like why like why do we think that is and so i i've got i've got a theory and then you can kind of take over from there and talk a little bit about some stuff um but here's kind of my thing um, I, I think that the seeds of modernity and secularism was really planted uh, back in the, you know, the 1200s, 1300s with a movement that would be called nominalism. You know, it started by a, a man named William of Ockham. And basically what it was, was it, it was a rejection of the, the traditional worldview of that, of the, that time which was basically a synthesis of uh, Platonism and Aristotelianism. Um, you know, you can see that in Christians like uh, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, um, you know, modern day guys like Craig Carter, for example, or Hans Borsma um, or Matthew Barrett, who is a Baptist example, called this, this whole tradition Christian Platonism. Um, you know, basically what they said was there were some people in this, in this tradition who were more platonic. Uh, there were some who were more Aristotelian like Thomas Aquinas, but basically this tradition, there was room for difference in it, but it was basically what they say was, this was the, this is the great tradition. This is the way that Christians historically viewed the world. Right. And so what happens? Right. Yeah. And so basically what Platonism says is, you know, it is it posits that there is what's called the world of forms, which is above us, you know, in heaven. Uh, and then below that and where we're at, we're living in the world of matter. And basically what they say is that everything participates in its higher form. Right. There's kind of you could throw in, you know, the world of forms is you know, basically archetypes or ideals, right? So for example, here, here's an example of that. All of us can look at a dog, right? Regardless right. of what kind of dog that it is. And what can we, we can tell that it's a dog, <laughs> right? You can look at a chihuahua yeah. or you can look at a Rottweiler and you know that it's a dog, 
Why do we know that? Well, what, what Christians in this tradition said was that we all within us, uh, stamped upon the soul by God, uh, have this, these forms, these ideals, these archetypes pressed into our souls by God, so that whenever we look at a dog, regardless of what kind it may be, we all see this shared dogness between them, right? Now, Aristotelianism, uh, it, you know, Thomas Aquinas, he would formulate that a little bit differently. Um, he would say that there's a kind of an overlap there between the form and the matter, and that you can uh, look that the, the form, the world of the forms doesn't necessarily exist in heaven, but he would say that, like, if you looked at a dog, you could see the form uh, and the matter there in, in that. And, you know, it's, it's, it kind of works out similar. It's a little bit different way of framing it, but overall, it still kind of fits in this. So I say that now to say this. So what happened whenever William of Ockham formulated what's now called nominalism was that he rejected this distinction, and this way of viewing things. And basically what he did is he rejected that there was a world of, of the forms, right? That, that, that things participated in. And so what he said was that things didn't really share the, say, so for example, he said that there wasn't an archetype or an ideal that connected dogs and their, that, and their dogness, right? What he said was those were associations that we as humans made. And you right. can immediately see what that does, right? You've just eliminated this, this, uh, this view of the world, right? Where there's this heavenly participation that things are participating in, right? Like it's just been eliminated in this view. And so what I think happened is this rejection of the traditional worldview, I think that this was the seeds of where modernity was um, where, where they were planted at. And so what happens from there is, you know, as, as Christendom begins to fragment, you know, with the Protestant Reformation, you know, and I'm a Protestant, I'm Reformed, right? So that's my camp. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, uh, but as things begin to fragment, what happens is, is people continue to kind of get away from this worldview. And nominalism almost becomes the inherited view of things after that um so we actually see that uh, we actually can kind of see all of these views present in some of the magisterial reformers and some of their doctrines um some of the magisterial reformers were aware of some of this um you know i was listening to dr jordan cooper who's a lutheran talk about if luther was a nominalist or not and he said that at least early in his career he wasn't and i think that he's right about that i think that you see in his doctrine of the lord's supper that he's very aristotelian um, because he believes that somehow, mysteriously, the elements of bread and wine become the real body and blood of the Lord. So yeah. he doesn't believe in transubstantiation. He doesn't believe that that happens through uh, them being transubstantiated. But he does believe they become the real body and blood of Jesus, which is very Aristotelian, right? You have form and matter united together in these elements, right? Very Aristotelian. Uh, now, for example, Calvin, on the other hand, he has a very uh, platonic view of the supper. So you can kind of see this present there, but he thinks that the, the matter of the Lord's supper, right? The bread and the wine, that they participate 
in the uh, the heavenly form, right? So he says that spiritually, what happens is that spiritually we participate in the real body and blood of Jesus. He says that they don't transform into body and blood, like Luther said, or like the Roman Catholic Church said. But he says what happens is by the power of the Spirit, we are lifted up out of the world of matter, to use some platonic uh, words here, lifted up out of the world of matter into the world of forms where we participate in the actual body and blood of Jesus. So very platonic, right? And so whenever you see uh, Zwingli, though, who is one of the other uh, magisterial reformers, he has a very nominalist view of the Lord's Supper. And so he says that there is no participation in the actual body and blood of Jesus in a platonic sense or in a, an Aristotelian sense. But rather, he says, there, it's just a memorial. It's just a symbol of the body yeah. and blood. So what happens is, you know, Z, uh, Zwingli's view of the supper um, as Protestantism continues to fragment, even to our day, uh, his view of the Lord's Supper is the norm, right? And so this, what happens is, is later on, this leads to, uh, I think, in the Puritan movement, um, you know, it, it leads to some some big time problems there. And, you know, I think you see it whenever you, you know, you get to some of the, I'm not saying that it was the Puritans, uh, all of the Puritans, but, you know, that kind of, but it kind of comes out of this worldview. Uh, whenever you see the burnings in Salem with with witches, right? So you've oh yeah, you've got this rejection of a of higher meaning of truth, you know those types of things. It's uh, and so what happens is they whenever they start to see these things, they begin to become very uh, superstitious and paranoid. You know, and it leads to things like hysteria. So, but I, I think that you've got quite a bit that you want to say about that. So, oh yeah, it, <clears throat> it's definitely the this purita- puritanical whitewashed backwards kind of superstitious spiritual worldview that yeah. led to a lot of that including yeah. the salem witch trials and the burnings in europe and things like that yeah yeah and and it's and it's really because they inherited you know i'll say it's it's not their fault per se that they inherited yeah. that worldview right um you know it, it, it's from a conversation that happened centuries you know, before them, but, but you can see it's, it's kind of, it's outworking there and you can still yet see it's outworking even today. Well, you see it with the great enlightenment where all like, where, where, you know, you really have secularism, uh, you know, kind of becoming a thing there, right. We've become enlightened and, you know, you've got people saying things like we've killed God. Right. And, you know, we, we can make our own meaning now. We don't have to rely on, on a God to, uh, grant us meaning and and things like that in life and you know that that leads all the way up into modernity today and so I, I think that what we see today that's that's happened because of this because of this conversation that happened you know a long time ago now um, that's almost led us to nihilism in some ways right like we now no right. longer have any meaning like life doesn't have any meaning the only thing that that is is what's in front of me the thing that i can taste touch or smell right um it's it's led us this the rejection of this the the forms the heavenly and this world that that overlaps in some ways and where where the world of the forms and the world of matter touch at points the rejection of that 
has led us to to nihilism essentially there is no meaning right the things don't participate in some heavenly end somewhere um and what's happened now is i think that people are beginning to realize this oh yeah i think that people were beginning to realize that that nihilism and the world that we're living in in this secular age that it can't actually offer them any hope in life it can't give them meaning and i think one of the things that we've also found out is that we're not very good at creating our own meaning no no matter how hard (laughs) we try right and so what's happened is people are starting to wake up to this right and what's happened now is there's a void and it's being filled by by neo-paganism and i think exactly I think this is the reason why we see the rise of things like neo-paganism and, and witchcraft in the age of secularism, because people have seen it, people have had it, they're tired of the nihilism, and so now they're turning to things like witchcraft. Because why? Well, because uh, you can pick up a magazine on Walmart's shelf. It's available for you to pick up. And oh yeah, and not only that, but because the church has rejected its supernatural worldview, its its view that it's held to um, for centuries, that it held to for centuries, that was talked about by you know some of our greatest thinkers like Aquinas and Augustine. Because we've rejected that, we now don't have anything to offer to people who are seeking transcendence because we don't have it ourselves anymore. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, Jonathan Peugeot, uh, he's an, he's an Eastern Orthodox, um, but uh, he's talked about the inevitability of re-enchantment, that this world is going to be re-enchanted. Oh, yeah. Uh, you it, start, it, you're literally seeing the, the seeds of that right now. Yeah. People fleeing atheism. Yep. I think the world today is probably a lot more spiritual than it's been in a generation. And yeah. these people that are coming out of atheism they don't know what to do with it yeah. and they're going looking for answers and the church literally has its head buried in the sand when it comes to this on the whole yeah. so the only i don't know for me personally when i was kind of seeking my own answers with these things i turned to the church and the church literally had nothing for me yeah it was paganism that offered that seemed to offer it all the answers and that's where i went yeah if the if the church would have had these categories in place even in the slightest bit i don't think i would even have begun to venture anywhere near paganism yeah so whenever so with your your experience was it the church that you went to they just didn't have the categories to you know explain some of this stuff to you maybe maybe you saw the like what you know one of the things that i've seen you know among witches and pagans is they they seem to have a high regard for for nature right um and you know unfortunately um most modern christians today don't and i I don't think that that's a traditional view of nature i mean like we've christians for centuries have affirmed things like uh natural revelation right natural theology the the heavens are declaring the glory of god you can look at it you can see god's handiwork in it that directs us back to him and because it reveals him uh and and uh shows us something about who he is that leads to us having a higher view of nature. Obviously we don't worship it. We distinguish between creation right. and creator, but, but most 
Christians don't even have that category even more no. or anymore, unfortunately. And so was it things like that that kind of led you to to this type of stuff? Well, that's that's exactly what it was. Uh, it was natural what we could, what we call now natural re- revelation. I didn't have that term for it then. Yeah. But in my practice, I had a reverence for nature and I went to my local church, the church that we grew up in, and they just didn't even have a category for that. They didn't yeah. even know what natural revelation was. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, whenever I became a Christian, um, you know, it, within a few years, within about three years, I, I was introduced to Reformed theology. And so, you know, I've, I've been a Christian for over a decade now. So I've, I've been swimming in these waters for a while now. But, you know, the first few years, though, um, looking back on my experience, um, the churches that I was a part of didn't have these categories either. You know, I, whenever I told you know, it's such a funny story. Whenever I actually told my pastor that I wanted to learn about theology and I wanted to plant a church, um, you know, and things like that, basically his answer for me was, wow, well, that's great, but you're going to have to go somewhere else because we don't do that here. Exactly. You know, and I, I think it's that type of attitude that drives people into the arms of paganism. Exactly. You know, this stuff is accessible. It has an enchanted view of creation. And if we don't have an answer to, to give to people who are looking for these things, who are looking for meaning, who are looking for, for re-enchantment, right? If they're, whenever they've, they finally grown tired of, of nihilism and, and secularism and all those things, if we don't have answers. What we're going to do is we're going to send them to people like Joe Rogan, who are super popular, <laughs> yeah, right? And he's going to direct them to, to all sorts of, of madness out there, right? Absolutely. So, so as the church, we have to be able to engage with this stuff. We have to know about it. We have to be able to, to, to just be able to look at it, to know what people believe and why they believe it. And we have to be able to give an answer and account for why we reject it and, and why we also, you know, um, have there are certain things that we can affirm you know those types of things so that, that'll move us on here to our our last and just to add something there yeah go ahead that's that seems to be a, at least now a really distinctly protestant problem because yeah. funny enough it was the catholic church that we worked with during our casework in the paranormal field it was uh having conversations with the clergy with the parish priest that really opened the door for me to even realized that christianity had these categories to begin with that's fascinating to me it's really fascinating to me you know and you know that's one thing as a pastor i have noticed that as well um that this is really this is really a protestant problem in some ways um and i'm a protestant i you know like i, I say this is this is an area where we have blind spots i think yep. um, i think that we we have some major issues here and um, and I think that it's because we have been really influenced, whether we know it or not, by modernity, um, you know, and, and, and the secularism and, and all those things. And it's I think that some of it's it's because of the we've just inherited it, you know, from some of these conversations that have happened before us. Um, most people aren't even aware that these conversations have happened. So their default worldview really is a secular view of the world you know they believe that that there's a god out there 
but they don't believe in things like angels and demons and oh yeah it's you know, very surface level yeah and like in and if they do believe in angels and demons they don't believe that they're they're active in your life they definitely don't think that they can possess somebody oh yeah. that's for sure you know and so um which you know anybody who's listening and knows me knows that i've done a done a podcast on you know uh, exorcism right and so one of the interesting things about that was that a lot of the response by Protestants afterwards was like, this doesn't happen today. <laughs> this, exactly. isn't a, yeah. this isn't a reality today. And I, I think that that goes to show that we have become secularists. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's all because of some of these things that we've been talking about. So, so with that in mind, okay, how do we engage this thing, right? How do we keep, how do we give answers? How do we engage with things like witchcraft? Like, where is it that we go from here? So I'll say this to get us started. Um, the traditional way uh, that Christians dealt with this is what some scholars have referred to as Christian synthesis. Now, that may sound complicated, but I promise you it's not. I got a quote that I want to read to you and explain to you. It's from Peter Kreeft. Uh, he's It's from his book, Back to Virtue. Um and it, it's in his chapter called, How Did We Get to the Edge? So basically, you know, he's talking about this same problem that we're talking about here. But he says that um, from the beginning, there were three different attitudes on the part of Christians towards the pagan world in general. And he said the first was uncritical synthesis, which means that you accepted everything the pagans said. The second was critical synthesis, which means that you accept some of it, what, what's true, you can accept, but you don't accept all of it. The third is criticism and anti-synthesis, which means that you only are critical and you don't accept any of it, okay? He says different Christian thinkers accepted either one, all, two, some, or three, none of pagan ideals or virtues. The greatest and mainstream Christians like Augustine and Aquinas, which I've mentioned several times in this podcast, uh, took the second way and have been criticized by extremists on both wings right up to the present day. They are, they are labeled fundamentalists by the modernists and modernists by the fundamentalists, <laughs> right? So, so what he's saying is that the, tr the traditional way that Christians have, have uh, engaged with paganism and things like witchcraft and, and all of is what's called Christian synthesis, where we are critical about the things we need to be critical about, and we accept the things that are true, right? He says that basically modernists are the ones who accept everything uncritically, and fundamentalists are the ones who don't accept anything right so traditionally or well at least uh you know now in our age this paradigm of engaging with things has been called the paradigm of bless baptize and burn right right bless baptize and burn so so that's the way that my that's my personal approach to things like this there are and what i mean by that is by bless we mean that whenever we are engaging with something outside of the biblical worldview, um, whenever we're engaging it, we need to engage it critically. And we need to look for the things that are true there. And whenever there are things that are true in it, we need to be able to bless those things because all truth is God's truth. 
right? Absolutely. Yep. And then by baptize, what I mean by that is there are some things that we're going to be able to look at in these worldviews that are just off slightly, right? That are almost there. And so what we have to do is we have to tweak them and baptize them so that they can be brought under the dominion and the lordship of Christ. At, at that point, we can accept them. But that there's also the last thing, which is burn, which means there are so, certain things that we're going to be able to, to see in some of these systems that just no matter how much we baptize it, it's going to still yet be contrary to what God has revealed to us in yeah. his word. And so for those things, we have to burn them. We can't accept them. So moving forward with this paradigm, of bless, baptize, and burn. What are some things that you think that we can bless, baptize, and burn whenever it comes to the topic of witchcraft? Um, I think people just naturally, when they hear of things about magic, they just want to toss everything out the window. When they don't, when they need to realize that magic is nothing but focused intent, mm. knowledge, and reverence. Yeah. So even in our churches, when we pray, when we chant when we burn incense and candles, we're using focused intention. Right. Yeah. I think that's interesting. So I think that what you're talking about there is the desire for higher meaning. Yeah. Right? Desire for higher meaning. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, so for example, you know, the symbolism behind lighting a candle in, in the, some of the higher traditions that do this, um, there's symbolism attached to that, that the smoke rises up. Right. And you see in books like Revelation where you see incense being lit. Right. And the, the aroma arises to the nostrils of God and they're a pleasing aroma to him, you know, that kind of thing. So there's symbolism there attached for. It. And whenever we see that desire in things like paganism or in witchcraft, we have to recognize that there's a true there's a true desire there. Right. Like there's 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 a desire for higher meaning, for mystery, for symbolism and spirituality. That's a good desire. But what we have to do is we have to baptize it and we have to tweak it, right? We have right. to show that, that seeing the higher meaning is good. But what you need to do is, is you, you have to learn to distinguish between creator and creation. One of the, one of the, the temptations in witchcraft is what Peter, uh, Peter Jones refers to as, as, as oneism, and they see all things as one, right? They see God in, in everything, and then there's an elevation and a worship of nature. And uh, Christians, he says, are twoists, which means that we hold to a distinction between creation and creator. So what we have to do is we can say we can see that desire for higher meaning and mystery and, and that respect and reverence for creation. But what we have to do is we have to bring it under the dominion of the Lordship of Christ, distinguish between the creator and creation, right? And that leads us to, to understanding what the church has traditionally said about natural theology or natural revelation, right? We see that God has revealed things here, but that has to direct us back up to him, right? And right. so, you know, another thing is, you know, like I was reading uh, in the magazine, um, there's this desire for sacred space among witches, right? They're drawing, right. They're drawing circles, right? And they're, they're doing rituals in them. So there's a desire for liturgy, right? That's a good desire. God's yeah. created you in that way. That's the language of creation, right? But what we have to do is we have to baptize that, right? We, the sacred space, this is what the church has tradition. This is why the church has traditionally built churches the way that they did. 
because it served as sacred space because they're, they, you know, and not only that, but this it's why there's liturgy because we understand this is the language of creation. So, so that that's some of the things we can bless. Those are some of the things that we can baptize. Now, obviously some of the things that we can't bless or baptize is the idolatry. Absolutely. We can't, we can't bless calling on other beings other than God to source uh, energy and power and those types of things, right? We can't call upon the, the archangels and do that, right? Those, those things are idolatrous. It's source and intention matters, right? Right. Yep. So, so you got anything you want to add to that before we, we close down this first episode? Oh, no, I think that's spot on. Yep. Thank you. Covered it pretty well. Good deal. All right. Well, this leads us to the conclusion of our first episode. And so uh, I'm really, really looking forward to what we have planned for the future. Uh, this episode was fun. Uh, this is the first episode we've ever done uh, with one another, right? You, yeah. in, in, in the previous episodes that you'll find on our podcast feed, it was always either me just interviewing guests or doing mini-sodes where I would uh, read something that we wrote on our Sword and Staff blog. So, And this is definitely probably one of the most complex subjects yeah. that we'll tackle on this podcast. Yeah. I mean, there are so many loose ends to tie here. Yeah. So this has been just a very kind of oh, surface level. Yeah. Big overview. Of, oh, yeah. Big overview of a broad and tangled topic right oh, absolutely so all right we so could we be hope- here talking all night and still wouldn't even get below the surface of this yeah. yeah and maybe maybe in the next few podcasts maybe we'll keep flushing some of this out and get a little bit deeper in it but we yeah. hope that it's been a a interesting conversation and we hope that it's at least given you a working knowledge of how some of this stuff works and ways to engage it moving forward right that's what we want to do and so so that leads us now to some of our plans for the sword and staff right so now we have you joining me as a new host this is our first episode together uh we're going to continue to do this and it's going to get awesome i think i think these conversations are going to be fantastic and this is the first time you've ever done a podcast oh yeah so i think you've always been very secretive about my work in the paranormal and my history with the occult yeah. Which, so it's it's definitely been difficult to come out and talk about it so openly now. Yeah, I totally understand that. So um so you I think you did really well for this to be your first episode ever talking on a podcast and talking ever. About this, this is stuff. the first time ever. Yeah, yeah. So but you know, the reason why, you know, is over the past year we've created this thing called the Sword and Staff, right? Yeah. And, and it's we find that we line up a lot on this stuff and we find that a lot of Christians aren't talking about this stuff the way that we should. And so we saw a need there and we wanted to meet it. And so that's why you're now a host on this uh, alongside of me. And so some of our plans moving forward is we're going to be dropping podcasts uh, weekly. Now there'll be a little bit different formats, right? We're planning on releasing these fuller episodes probably every other week on Fridays and then on the, the off weeks in between, we're going to release mini-sodes, right? Mini-sodes, and so, yep. yep. So if you guys have been listening for a while and you saw the mini-sodes where we had red, uh, red ones, uh, they were read from our articles on our Sword and Staff blog, we're going to keep doing those. Richie and I are going to keep, uh, keep writing. Uh, maybe we'll have other contributors to contribute in the future, and maybe we'll have some of those articles read. So those will continue to be happening 
in off weeks. Now, what we're also going to do is we're going to have what we're going to call chin wags. The chin wag <laughs> is, is a shorter episode where when Richie and I will get together and we'll just have, it'll be a short episode. We'll talk about whatever's on our mind. It'll be very informal or maybe we'll we'll review series as we've we've been doing or things like that. So those will also occasionally be on the off weeks in between the big episodes. So those are some Absolutely. of our plans moving forward. We're excited about it and we hope that you guys are excited about it as well. So Richie, you got anything else before we sign off? Uh, not really. I think we've pretty much covered it really well. I'm definitely excited to get going with all this. I know we have even plans for sword and staff that go beyond that to like a men's group conferences things like that yep so yep that's true we've we've got all kinds of things in the works you guys stay tuned and also make sure if you're listening to follow us on social media you can find us on instagram at sword and staff order i think it's it or is it order yep i think it's sword and staff order and you yeah. can find us on Facebook at The Sword and Staff and also sign up for our Substack newsletter, which you can find at um, order of the, it's a swordandstafforder.substack.com. You can subscribe there. You can get our blog post delivered to your inbox whenever they drop. And uh, so I think that about wraps us up for this episode. So, Richie, you got anything else you want to add before we go? Oh, no, I'm good. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you guys next time. See you see later. You